0: So we have been talking about the topic of heroes this morning and today we're talking about answering the call. Whether you have in your minds you have the the picture of, of, of Superman who is far away and with his supersonic or hypersonic or whatever it is hearing, he hears the cry of a damsel in distress far away and he heads out quickly to rescue her. Or you have Commissioner Gordon going up and putting up the bat signal into the into the overcast sky and Batman uh, leaps into action. Or you have just that, that, that quintessential uh, a red emergency phone when the line comes in uh, there is a reality that on the other end of every signal, on the other end of every call for help, there has to be someone who's willing and ready to answer the cry of distress. Now, not just superheroes, but I mean, we've got, we've got uh, police departments that respond to the 911 dispatch, which call in. There has to be someone who's ready to respond. We look at the firemen when the alarm goes off in the firehouse. There has to be someone who's ready to respond. So for you and I as Christians, what does it mean? What is the call? What is the cry for help that is happening in the world that you and I as Christians should be answering? What is it? Well, it's evangelism. The cry of this world is the cry of the lost, whether they realize it, acknowledge it or not. Internally, they are crying out for help. They are crying out for truth, crying out for acceptance. They desperately want it. So the question is, are we going to provide that to them? So this next couple of weeks, we're going to be talking about evangelism as a answering the call. Because in reality, this is what we are supposed to be about. This is the corner, really, really the focus, the cornerstone of what it is that the church is supposed to be doing. We are supposed to be reaching out. So if I were to ask you to assess yourself this morning, with this question would you consider yourself a person who reaches out to others in the name of Jesus what would your answer be what would your assessment self assessment be it's not something i can assess and 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 maybe you think i should be able to or someone else should be able to assess that no one can no one can assess whether or not you are actively reaching out to other people in the name of Jesus and the reason is, is because evangelism does not always look the same. In fact, it mostly doesn't look the same. Yet, when I start talking about uh, evangelism, or I mention to you, uh, asking you, do you evangelize? Uh, you probably have immediately in your mind some pictures that pop up of what that looks like. So, maybe, maybe the image of evangelism is the, the picture of a warm conversation uh, family friends, someone, and sharing with them what Jesus has done for you in a very loving and gentle way that that 's a valid image of evangelism and reaching uh, reaching the lost, whether they 're family or friends. Maybe in your mind, you have what a lot of us have, which is the image of a uh, almost abrasive Kind of in-your-face evangelism—the uh, kind that most of us we we would we wouldn't want to be. Uh, uh, not only would we not want to be on the receiving end of it, we would not want to be on the uh, active end of it. When I was a intern in Rockford, Illinois, I had a we had a minister there uh, who was my mentor while we were there. His name was Dan Robinson. This guy was amazing at evangelism. This guy. This guy had it. It was, it was incredible. So he would load me up, and we would go out around to the neighborhoods, and he would send me up one side of the street, and I would go up the other side of the street, knocking on doors and cold calling. Now, when someone answered the door to him, they were initially uh, uh, put off, but he just had this way about him that uh, uh, it, it didn't take him a minute and he had them smiling and laughing, and he was building a rapport with them. I, on the other side of the street, I could probably get three or four streets done in the amount of time he got two or three houses done, because I just got slammed doors in my face. Why? I don't know, because, because there was not a connection there uh, of, in, in that mode of evangelism for me. Does that mean that that isn't evangelism? Absolutely not. Dan was amazing at it. But I also want to emphasize it is not the only method of evangelism. And that's, that's kind of what we're talking about this morning. So let's, um, uh, we're going to begin with this passage, Matthew 28, Jesus, uh, right before he ascends into heaven, gives this instruction. It says that, now the 11 disciples, they went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Why, stop for a second. Why does he start this way? He says, come and meet me. They come up. Some are worshiping him. Some are doubting him. And he comes down to them, and the words that come out of his mouth are, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. What he is saying there is, what I am getting ready to tell you, cannot be changed, cannot be altered. It is the way it is by the one and only that has the authority to state it. And this is what he says. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So, when I was growing up, we saw this uh, pro, uh, uh, programmatic program whatever as a as, as a program uh, promatically. We, we saw it as something to be executed. So so we go out and we and we find and we and we and we tell them the truth, and then we move to baptism, and then we teach them to obey. And, and, and everything was was very much a evangelism is done a certain way. It looks a certain way. But the reality of what Jesus is saying is actually in my mind rather different. He says he says to go out and disciple, make disciples. What what does it mean to make a disciple? It means to share with someone the saving message of who Jesus Christ is. That's not a program. That's not a methodology. That's just a priority. Go into the world and tell them there's a different way. Show them an alternative. When someone wants to come, have them crucify themselves to the flesh, be washed and raised to new life as a new creature. And then teach this new creation of mine to follow in my footsteps. That's what Jesus is saying here. Evangelism. I mean, here he is. The last words that he gets to say to them before he goes into heaven. And this is what he says. Notice, he doesn't say, worship me. I'm not saying we don't worship him. No, we're supposed to worship him. But his last words aren't, worship me. His last words aren't serve me. His last words um, uh, aren't, aren't memorized. His last words are going evangelize. Why? Because everything else that we do, everything else that we are, hinges on evangelism. I have come to Christ. I am here today as a pastor because of evangelism. The disciples were saved because of evangelism. That God—it wasn't the teaching. God gave them the teaching when he, you know, when he was uh, when Moses was up on the mountainside. He gave them the teaching. That wasn't enough. What was it? It was Jesus leaving heaven, coming to earth, reaching them where they were and helping them transform their lives. Their relationship, the real relationship, their new life began with evangelism. We worship because we were evangelized. We give because we were evangelized. We minister, we serve, we we are generous all of the things that we do. We do because We were evangelized. We gather here today. We partake of communion. All of these things have meaning, but they have meaning because we were evangelized. And Jesus is trying to get us to understand that all of the things that we do in the church that we find so vital and so important begin with evangelism. And so he's looking at those who were the recipients of his evangelistic effort, and he says to them as he's leaving, now you go and evangelize as well. You go and do what I have been doing. So as we talk about this this morning, I want you to have in your minds this concept that we are reaching out. And when I say reaching out, I'm not talking about a a, a programming. I'm not talking about a methodology. I'm not wanting to sit here and tell you if you do A, B, and C and follow these steps that you will, uh, uh, you will get this result. I don't want to do that. If you were called upon by God to go and minister to the Muslim world, what would you do? Here you are you're called by God to go evangelize, what steps would you take? What would you prepare? What do you think when you're interacting with these uh, uh, Muslim non-believers in Christ, what do you think that you need to have in order to reach them for Christ? Now, most of us would probably come up with answers like I have, and I have in the past. Well, I probably need to understand their culture. I need to understand the Koran. Why? Why do I want to understand the Koran? I want to understand their teachings so I can understand how to take them from where they are to where they need to be. I, I, I need to have in my mindset uh, uh, plans in order to handle, and, and, um, uh, handle threats. And dangers that I'm going to face, those are going to be a part of the reality. I mean, there's a lot of planning and programming that I can do to make it uh, uh, more and more effective, or at least try to. But as I have spoken over the past about 10 years with missionaries from the, um, the Muslim world, there's something I keep hearing over and over again that they have found is the most effective way to reach Muslims. They will walk around in a crowded marketplace or in a crowded city street and they will just go up to complete strangers and they will ask them one question, have you had a dream about the man in white? They look at them like they're crazy, they just keep moving. They said that there is not a day that goes by, that they do not have multiple people as they're going along the day. They may interact with thousands. They ask this one question, and inevitably, they will always have someone who says, yes, who is he? And then they're able to pull them aside and teach them. They could spend their entire day trying to execute the perfect programs, the perfect plans to try to evangelize when really what they have found out is that God has already been doing the work in the places that they're going. All they've got to do is ask people, has this happened to you? No. Has it happened to you? No. Okay. It has happened to you. Let's talk. And they actually make the most use of their time. And for most of us, who who did that? Who was the first person to go? I'm just going to randomly ask people about their dreams. I don't know, but it's a thing that's happening. Evangelism. It may look like going up to strangers' door, but it isn't going up to strangers' door. It might look like asking people if they've had a dream, but it, it, that's not what it is. What is evangelism? So how, how do you get to that place where, where we are ready? Because what I, what I want to do is I want to set the priorities, the principles, the, the heart condition. It, it, it's a, it, evangelism is a mode of operation that I operate out of. It's a mentality that I carry with me. And the first step of that is this, is that I have to be willing, you have to be willing to enter into the zone of the unknown. And I, I'm sorry for the, the ridiculous rhyming. But you have to be willing to enter the zone of the unknown. The very nature of human existence is that we, at the most central core of our being, what do we desire more than anything? Maybe you say money. It really isn't. Why do we want money? We want money for the same reason we want food. Why do we want food Uh, uh, for the same reason that we want security? Why do we want security? Uh, It's all to grab a hold of comfort. We want to be comfortable. I want power so that people do what I want them to for the sake of comfort. I want to eat for comfort. I don't, want to, I don't want to be hungry. I don't want to starve. I want to have money so that I can make my life easier. I want security so that I feel safe. It's all comfort. Our default position as humans is to insulate and provide as much comfort into our lives as possible, and yet the very nature of the world teaches us that that has no health in it that is not good so there's a child that's in its mother's womb right and I mean I mean think about this it's dark it, it's quiet it's, it's, it's warm it's with its mom it, it, it hears the mother's heartbeat it is right there and then it's born. Now it's dry, and it's cold, and it's not next to mom anymore. Where where is she at? So they they take it away, and and it's crying, crying out for mom. One of the things that, uh, for those of us that have been parents, if you haven't been parents, this is something that you will learn when you have kids. You learn very quickly. You have to let your child cry. You cannot pick up your kid every time they cry. Because the default state of that child is the child wants to be held, by clo- uh, held close and, and secure by mom. That's what it wants. That's its default position. But that isn't healthy. None of us would find a 31-year-old man sitting in here being cradled by his mom healthy. We'd look at that and say, that's disturbing. That's messed up. Because there's no growth in comfort. So no, that's, if you start thinking, as a a parent, the one thing you constantly are trying to do is push your kids out of their comfort zones. Try a sport. Try art. Try theater. Try different things. You do not know what you are good at. You do not know what you will like unless you try them out. And the quickest way that we do that as parents is in the food that we give our kids. Every kid would be very happy, very happy to have fries and nuggets every meal and never eat anything else. And you know what? If we we just want comfort for our kids, that's what we're going to do because we just want them to be warm and happy. That isn't good. So what do we do? We get vegetables and fruits that they haven't tried, that they don't like, and we put it on a plate and we set it before them, and we tell them as little kids, I mean, your grandma said it, your mom said it, you're probably going to say it. You won't know if you like it unless you try it. And to try to teach you that lesson, what do they do? Make you sit there until you have at least had one bite of everything on your plate. I spent a lot of time sitting at the table all by myself. And lo and behold, time after time after time, the child decides that they don't want to eat it, but then they finally try it once. And you know what happens sometimes? It actually does happen. They go, huh, that's not so bad. They do, they find they like something. At default, we want to be comfortable. We know we're pushing our kids. We're pu- we push our kids because we know, we know there is no growth in comfort. Right? There's no growth. They're called growing pains for a reason. No one grows, oh, yeah, feeling better. No, you hurt. No one grows in knowledge without wrestling with things that are uncomfortable, that they, don't, that they don't like, that they don't enjoy. How weird is it? I the lights start going nuts when we're talking about getting outside of your comfort zone. Welcome to uncomfortable church. I'm going to keep going. Let's go. Here's what what Jesus says. Let's look at this story. You know this story. It's very familiar. Matthew 14. Um, Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get in the boat and go before him, and and they set off. and, And he dismisses the crowds. After he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was there all alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, Jesus came to them, walking on the sea. But when his disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. And they said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I, do not, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come out to you on the water. And he said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and he walked on the water and he came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O oh, you of little faith, why do you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshiped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. So in this story, what do we what do we see? in this story we we see by nature again the default position of humanity is that we want to be comfortable so here they are they're sent by Jesus to go on a boat they're heading across the water they're expecting to meet Jesus on the other side and Discomfort comes. I mean, they're getting wind and waves are rocking the boat around, and, and, they're, and they're getting scared. They're getting worried, which is what we all do when we, are in, when we are in an unknown situation. When we do not feel safe, we begin to fear. And so Jesus, though, while this is happening, while they are in the unknown, while they do not have control of their life, all of a sudden he comes walking up to them on the water. And because they are in an unknown situation, an unknown environment, because they're not uh, uh, used to or aware of it, they're not aware of what's happening. They look, they see this person walking on the water, they've never had this experience before, and so they cry out, it's a ghost, it's an apparition. Which is what we do when we see things that we don't understand. No one said, you know what, I bet that's actually a person walking on that water. No, no, they, they didn't think that. They thought it must be a ghost because that was more likely than not. No, in this situation, as Jesus approaches, he, they see that it's him Peter responds, and he speaks out, and he yells out. He says to Jesus, he he says, Lord, if it is you, call me out to you. Call me out to come to you. And Jesus says, come. And Peter, what does he do? He jumps out of the boat. He's never seen this before. He doesn't know if he can. He just decides, hey, I see Jesus walking on water. That seems pretty cool. And so Jesus says, come on. He jumps out, and he walks over to him. And he's doing it. He's doing it because he got out of the boat. He's doing it because he was willing to try something he hadn't tried. But then what happened? He looks around and he becomes afraid. Now the unknown. He starts wondering, how am I standing here? What happens if I fall? All of the unknown begins to go through his mind, and he begins to sink. Jesus grabs and pulls him up and says, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And I always thought Jesus was kind of being harsh there, like getting on to him and, hey, why are you doubting? And I don't think he is. I don't think he is. Now when I read that, I see Jesus as going, oh, Peter, you were this close. Why did you doubt? You did it. You walked all the way over here, and then you, and you, you lost it. Disappointed, yeah, but, but, but really proud that he had gotten that close. You and I, we have to be willing to enter into the zone of the unknown. We have to. We push our kids, and then we surround ourselves with comfort again. We only hang out with people who think like us, act like us, talk like us. We don't, we don't deal with difficulties. We, we try to insulate ourselves. And when we do that, we do not grow. So if you want to be effective at reaching the lost, it begins with being willing to enter that zone of the unknown. The second thing is, which is not up here, so listen. The second thing is, listen to and seek the Spirit's prompt. Listen for and seek the Spirit's prompting. You and I have to not only be willing to respond, we have to be willing to listen, to hear. The Holy Spirit will tell you. This is a promise. Listen, the Spirit, Christ tells us, will tell you what to say. In any given situation. So let's take for a moment, right? Peter is in that boat, and he's willing. He's ready to get out. He says, Jesus, tell me to come. And he jumps out, and he's walking. So maybe you are willing, right? Maybe you're willing and ready to to jump out there. You just don't want to jump out at the wrong time. But you feel the Spirit. You feel the Spirit move you, speak to you. You step out. if you do not trust, you're going to sink. The Spirit will, 100% of the time, guide your words if you respond to his prompting. He is trying to move you, speak to you. He's doing it right now. In John chapter 16, Jesus says this. He says, but now I am going to him sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has now filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I am going away. Pause there for a second. It is to your advantage that I am going away. Jesus is saying, look, as long as I walk with you, you don't have to grow Jesus hears from the father Jesus is prompted by the spirit and Jesus obeys and his disciples follow but Jesus is saying it is of advantage it is advantageous for you that I leave and you begin this relationship Here, so here's what he says he says if i go or he says if i do not go away The helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because those who do not believe in uh, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Still, I have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it. To you, so Jesus here. What does he say? He says the Spirit is going to lead you and guide you because I'm leaving this earth. The Spirit will come upon you, and He will tell you what to do. And not just the righteous, not just the saved. The Holy Spirit is actually speaking into the lives of the lost. If you've ever encountered anyone, they know you're a Christian. You don't judge them. You don't say anything to them. You're not trying to to, to rain on their parade, or but they feel. Convicted in your presence. Have you ever had that happen? Where where there are people who just don't want to be around you because they know what you believe. They feel guilty inside. Here's the reality. No one feels guilty because you make them feel guilty. They feel guilty because the Holy Spirit is convicting them and you are a reminder of the truth. The Holy Spirit is working into the world to convict them of sin. But Jesus says that for those of us who are saved, he is working for righteousness. Because Jesus has left, now the Spirit is directly speaking and leading us into what we need to do. You and I, we can come up with all of the plans, all of the methodologies, and it will be meaningless if we are not responding to the Spirit's direct leading. He will lead us into what must be done. And the last thing is this. We have to step out in faith. It's almost obvious. Evangelism does not happen if I'm not willing to go. You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. We know that phrase. You can bring the vegetables to your kids. You can't make them eat. There has to be a willingness. The Spirit is speaking. We've got to be listening. And when he speaks, we have to be willing to step outside of our comfort zone and do something that is different. The world around us is crying out for help. I have never been in a church where someone tripped and fell that everyone stood around and says, ooh, I hope they're okay. What happens? Everyone rushes, grabs a hold, lifts up. No one sits there and says, would you like some help? No one, you see someone fall, you don't ask them if they want help. You go over and you help pick them up. It's just, it's, it's, it's in us. We, we, we step outside and we just do that which is right. When we see someone in trouble, when we feel the need to reach out, when God tells us to speak, we need to not think about it. We need to do it. 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says, for we walk by faith and not by sight. Comfort is what we see. It's what we know. It's what we expect. If it's the middle of the day and I hear Quinn on the other side of the house yell out, he's injured and he cries out. I come running across the living room, through the, I, I come running to find him. And I do so confidently because I can see whether the way's clear or not. I'm able to run, hop over things, whatever I've got to do to get there. I'm much more confident. But see, we do not walk by faith, or we do not walk by sight. We walk by faith, which is along the lines of it's the middle of the night and I hear him cry out. Am I going to stay where I'm at because I'm not sure if any toys were left out? No, it doesn't matter. I don't have to see it. I'm going to get there. You do not have to see how you're going to get there. You don't have to understand every step of the way. God is looking for people who have a heart to answer that call. Let's stand. We're going to sing our song of invitation. Luckily, it's one I don't think you need the words for. So it's going to be good. So we just invite you to. Sing this if there's any need that you have, any way that you need to respond. Just come forward and let us pray with you.